gentleman asked me, he said, well, what's the most important thing about chicken nutrition? And I don't, I probably said something about amino acids or energy or, you know, some, some nutritional explanation. And he said, no, the most important thing is making sure that there's feed on the farm. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this episode of the Feed Science Podcast Show. I am one of the uh, co-hosts, Wilmer Pacheco, and um, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Uh, JT Pope. How are you, JT? Doing well, Wilmer. Good afternoon. Well, it's, it's good to see you, JT. Um, and, um, you know, like, we had the opportunity to, to study together at NC State when we were uh, grad students a few years ago. But uh, for those who don't know you, uh, could you please, uh, you know, share some of your professional experience? Yeah. So, uh, like Wilmer said, my name is JT Pope. I'm a nutritionist, one of the nutritionists at House of Rayford. And uh, we're a still family-owned company that we, we, we process about 4 million broilers a week. Um, and, and kind of where I got to, to Rayford from is I, I kind of I grew up in central North Carolina, and my dad bought me an incubator one year for Christmas. So um, I started hatching quail eggs and had a good time doing that. So when it came time to go to college, I went to NC State because they had a poultry science program, and that's obviously where I met you, Wilmer, uh, many, many years ago now. And um, yeah. I got interested in feed manufacturing uh, because there was a job there at the feed mill. So I started working at the feed mill as an undergrad at NC State and spent many years there. And then I started uh, graduate school and kind of naturally transitioned over to doing more nutrition-based research because I was constantly seeing all of these research diets and, you know, kind of curious about why is there more methionine in this diet than the other one while, while making uh, research feeds for folks. So that's kind of how I got into nutrition research and feed manufacturing. And, you know, it led to a job with House of Rayford and I've been there about five years now. So. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Excellent. And, uh, you know, something that I, that I can see, you know, like, um, you know, with your experience, JT, is that um, even before you went to the, to the industry, right, uh, when you were at NC State, you got that opportunity to work in, um, in, in feed milling and nutrition. And, you know, like now you are getting more exposed to, to those uh, areas uh, as, a, as a nutritionist um, at House of Rayford. 
So maybe if you could share some uh, thoughts on um, what do you what do you think that um, we can do in feed manufacturing to impact positively the the performance of the birds? Yeah. So um, you know, I, I, one of the a, a nice experience that I had uh, just on an internship with Rayford years ago is I went to a farm and a gentleman asked me. He said, "Well, what's the most important thing about chicken nutrition?" And I don't. I probably said something about amino acids or energy or you know some some nutritional explanation. And he said, "No, the most important thing is making sure that there's feed on the farm." And uh, that kind of stuck with me because that's that's you know nutrition. We don't operate in a silo. We have to consider all of the factors uh, whenever we're changing formulas and and um, you know being in close contact with the feed mill to make sure that those diets are running properly. And to make sure that they're not struggling on the supply side with anything to make sure that we just have constant uh, availability of feed at the farms. So that's kind of one of the first ways that nutritionists have to work directly with the feed mill. So, so maybe uh, the other things that I, that I would like to, to know is, uh, you know, like what, what would be like the effect of, you know, feed manufacturing on performance, maybe like uh uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, uh, the particle size or, you know, the mixing uniformity or a pellet quality? Yeah, certainly. So so we can just go through all of the processes. I mean, starting off for, from a nutritional standpoint, you know, we would prefer to have a coarse grind in, in our birds. Um, I know that might be different for the swine guys or, or for other animals, but in chicken specifically, especially if you're growing a large bird like we do that's over you know, nine to 10 pound bird, um, there's no reason for us to have four or 500 micron corn there um, to make sure that we get the best digestive efficiency from the animal. The gizzard has to work. So we're constantly shooting for 800 to 1,000 or even, even higher than that uh, micron particle size uh, on our corn. So um, from there, you know, going to the mixability of the diets, we, we do a lot of mixer analysis. We're usually doing them quarterly. And, um, and luckily, from what I've seen, we haven't really ran into any issues with mixability. Um, the only thing that I've seen kind of give us a hard time is maybe when we were using high fiber ingredients where we weren't getting as good of uniformity, maybe because mixer fill was too, too great or something along those lines. But for the most part, from what we've seen, mixability is usually really good. Um, but that probably means that, you know, our guys in the feed mills, they've dialed in their, their dry mix times, their, their discharge sequences, their wet mix times and everything. Um, so, um, so we just haven't seen many issues with mixability. Now, when we get to pelleting, I think that's the part where I would imagine most nutritionists get, uh, the most worried about the process. Um, so there's a lot of things that we can do at the pellet mills that can negatively affect the nutrients that we will deliver to our birds. And I think, um, you know, over the years, there's been a big push for better pellet quality. And I'm starting to think that, you know, there's more of a balance to that than there is just saying, hey, we've got this pellet quality target and we want to hit that at the farm. Um, it doesn't do you any good if you've destroyed all the nutrients on the way there, you know, and, and some, someone told me in the crowd once at the IPSF that chickens don't eat PDIs. 
And I thought, well, that's that's pretty good. They don't eat PDIs. Um, so we have to make sure that we're giving them something that's palatable, but also still delivers all of the nutrients that we expected that feed to have. Um, so we as a company, we tend to run probably lower pelleting temperatures than some folks do just to err on the side of caution, you know, um, and, and another word of the wise, um, you know, make sure you're checking your thermocouples on the conditioner because it's not uncommon for those to go bad. And you might be pelleting 10 degrees above or below where you think you are just because the equipment's uh, malfunctioning. But uh, we probably err a little bit on the side of uh, on the side of caution just to make sure that that, you know, we don't we've paid a lot of money for those nutrients. And the last, last thing we want to do is burn all of them up in a pellet mill, whether that be your you know, reactive lysine, your vitamins, uh, all of your a lot of your enzymes are heat sensitive as well. Um, so uh, even going into the dye, you know, depends on what a company's goal is as far as pellet quality. But if you're running an LD12 dye or higher like they might in Europe, it's probably not going to be great for nutrient preservation along the way. So um, we are a little bit softer in our approach to to pelleting feeds. You know, so a little lower temperatures, LD isn't crazy. Um, we're pelleting at throughputs that are uh, that should be safe, and I don't expect that we have much temperature rise across the die. You know, maybe five degrees or something like that. Um, but that's kind of the ways that we, as a nutritionist, just walking into the feed mills that we work with, try to steer them in a way to make sure that they can still process all of the feed that they need to process, but that the birds are receiving the nutrients that we intended for them to receive. That's really good, JT. And, uh, you know, like I have, um, I have seen, you know, some complaints, no, not here in the U.S., but like in other countries where they make like the pellets, uh, too hard. And then the, the chickens actually don't, don't like to eat it. And then they just, uh, take it from the feeder and put it on the floor. And, um, that's a lot of money, right? That the, the companies can, can lose there. Um, so. Since, you know, like um, you have a lot of experience with, you know, pelleting and pellet quality, uh, how do you keep like, you know, like the balance? Do you, um, you know, between pellet quality and throughput, do you typically control that? Um, uh, you say, you know, with the amount of uh, fat that you put in the mixer or, or what other things you do? Or do you, because, you know, like I feel like changing the, the all the ratios in the dye sometimes it's more difficult. So I don't know what, what would be your thoughts on that? Yeah. So we we are actually very stable uh, kind of across nutrition, but also across the feed manufacturing process. Um, so we're more likely to see variation coming from raw material quality or the weather than we are, I think, directly because of formulation. Uh, we actually don't have any postcoders in any of our facilities anymore, um, or excuse me, we still operate one, and and that's kind of up to the that that's kind of used at the discretion of the mill manager. So if they want better pellet quality, then they can move some of their fat and put it downstream. Um, but for the most part, with with broilers, you know, our our added fat in our diets uh, sometimes are just at a level where it's fairly functional for manufacturing feed anyways. You know, so we're not, we, we don't have the same fat issues that people on the swine side or the turkey side might encounter where they're trying to put, you know, five to 10% fat in a diet. Um, so our diets are kind of thankfully optimized for pellet quality from the start. 
Um, so that's kind of, you know, that's, that's one of the things that's kind of up to the mill managers. Um, and they communicate with us really well. If they're having problems running a diet, they're going to let us know. And like I said earlier, we can't, you know, that system has to run. We have animals to feed. So uh, if we have to, we'll give them diets that have a little more fat in them to get them through some raw material issues. And then hopefully we can get back on normal formulas that are optimized for, you know, to, for, for price and for uh, performance of the animal. That, that's really good, uh, JT. But, you know, like there is um, something that probably doesn't happen a lot, you know, with uh, your company. But uh, maybe for, you know, other um, feed mill people uh, listening to this podcast, what do you think like uh, feed mill personnel should do if, if they get a formula that doesn't run as it's supposed to? Or if that formula has a negative effect on pellet quality? What, how do they should communicate uh, with the nutritionist? Yeah, so hopefully they would call and actually more often than not, whenever we're making a change, you know, the nutritionist should be able to look at that diet and say, oh, I think this is going to actually be kind of tough to run. And uh, whenever we do that, I'm usually calling the managers, asking them if that diet is running like we think it should be or if they need help. If they seem their throughput really fall off because of it. Um, you know, so communication there is going to be key. Um, if they have diets that aren't running well, and for example, you might have a throughput aid at a facility, we'll often tell them, hey, just, you know, if you need a little extra throughput aid, move that in at the expense of like, you know, a pound of corn or something where it's not really going to have an effect on the nutrition, but the feed mill manager can, you know, you know, get the call from his operator at 2 a.m. saying these diets won't pellet. He might say, hey, we'll put two more pounds of this product in just to keep the mill running. And then we can have the conversation later about how to fix that into the formulations. Um, and like I said, on you know, every company's different. So we don't have any kind of like standard pellet quality that we are absolutely trying to hit. Uh, we monitor it every week, but we don't put pressures on our mills directly to hit pellet quality targets. But if we were to, and, and uh, feed mill managers wondering what to do, there's only so many things they can play with. You know, if they have a post-coating system, maybe they move more of their fat downstream. If they don't and they can, uh, and they have the time in the facility, one of the quickest ways to get pellet quality is to just slow the pellet mill down. You know, that's, that's going to be a really easy way. And then if you, if you have a, you know, if you have a target and you're absolutely not hitting it from a nutritionist standpoint, I would start looking towards maybe bringing in some wheat products or something with some native proteins or, or gluten in there, because that's just a really cheap, you know, binder that uh, also brings a lot of nu nutrient value to it as well. So um, I guess that's kind of the way I think that back and forth should go between the feed mill and the nutritionist. That, that's really good. And, um, you know, like um, we got some nutritionists that like to, to listen to this podcast and uh, maybe, uh, I don't know if you could share like some, um, you know, feed milling technologies that they could use to improve pellet quality or, you know, animal performance. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, when I think about kind of where our feed mills are, um, you know, there's a lot of theory out there behind technologies that could help us in feed manufacturing, but I haven't seen a ton of that actually in practice in these large facilities. Um, you know, but one of the things that comes to mind for us, at least in the summertime, that's when we tend to deal with the most amount of when pellet quality issues as well as throughput issues. And a lot of that is just based on moisture. So in the middle of the summer, 
you know, we're getting the corn moistures that are 11, 10, 10 to 12% moisture in the corn, where five months ago you were running a 15, 15% moisture corn product. So whenever all that comes through, there is just not, you know, there's not enough temperature rise going from your mash to your conditioner to actually put enough moisture into the process to make the pelleting functional. So I think a really nice technology that might be able to help feed mills and nutritionists kind of balance that uh, throughput and pellet quality for the, for the three hottest months of the year would be with some inline equipment, um, maybe inline NIR on your grinding system. That way you would know exactly kind of what kind of moisture profile your, your grain has. And then uh, on the pelleting side, it's, you know, I, I would imagine, I'm not an engineer, so, uh, but I would imagine that we would be getting close to being able to measure moisture kind of real time um, through the, through the conditioner. And so if you knew those variables, you've got a mixer down there that you can easily add water to. And, you know, a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, you don't want to add water because you're diluting it. And, um, you know, you're diluting the nutrients, but you should be able to take that right back out of the cooler. So I think that's a really easy way that we could optimize summer pelleting and maintain pellet quality is with a little bit of water. And I know people have done that in the past, but I don't think it's like really well adopted or really well accepted. Um, but the, the summertime is all, always the most problematic for us for throughput and for pellet quality. Uh, one thing that I was going to tell you, JT, is that um, I have seen uh, some companies that they have uh, moisture analyzers in the mixer. And then they said, you know, this is the amount of moisture that I want in the bash leaving the mixer. And then they might decide like 12 and a half. And so basically, depending on the amount of moisture from the ingredients, then uh, they apply, you know, X amount of moisture to get to uh, 12 and a half. So that, that might be, as you are mentioning, a good, a good uh, technology to make sure that, you know, the, the meal entering the conditioner have the same amount of moisture. And then typically we add three and a half to four percent moisture in the conditioner. So. I just wanted to to share that with you, JT. <laughs> yeah, no, that is that is correct. You know, so if you looked over time, I mean, that's going to be our biggest variable with corn. Uh, you know, at, you know, if you look at a, the way a feed mill is working over the course of a year, probably some of the largest variations that feed mill is going to encounter is just moisture in corn. You know, so if you can mm -hmm. stabilize the moisture of the corn, I think you would take a lot of your throughput and your pellet quality um, goals and make them much more obtainable because you're taking out the largest source of variation for their kind of day-to-day -day headaches. You know, we, we can't, we can't put them in a bubble and, and make the uh, weather perfect form all the time, but we can do something about the moisture in the feed. That is true. And uh, one, one thing, you know, like just to expand, because I think this is a really important um, uh, topic, right? You know, like the control of moisture in the, in the feed mill, do you see when, when uh, during the summer, do you see lower moisture because um, the corn is lower, uh, but also because you are losing more moisture in the in 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 the uh, grinding system, or or is mainly because the the moisture of the corn is lower in the summer? Yeah, I don't know specifically about the grinding system. Um, I think it would be yeah be easy to you know theorize that yeah maybe we probably lose a little bit more moisture. Uh, in the summer, but we see it in our raw materials coming into the facility. 
So yeah. when we start off harvest between 15 and 16 percent and by the end of summer, uh, guys are kind of bringing us, you know, old crop corn that's 10 to 12 percent moisture. You know, so I mean, we didn't we didn't stand a chance to control it from the very beginning. If, yeah. if we want to optimize that process, we're going to have to make that corn moisture consistent throughout the year. Sounds good. Yeah. And, and uh, what, what other, you know, like uh, technologies do, do you think like a nutritionist can use? Yeah, I, I, I love the idea of inline NIR. You know, um, I, I think I've been to one facility that has it. And, and it was actually a while ago. Um, and I highly doubt they're formulating with it, batching with it, all of those things that it's intended to do. But I think they're, you know, over time, if we want to get more, um, if, if we want to be more efficient with our raw materials, I think inline in NIR is going to be the way to go. I don't know how, I haven't even played with it myself. I don't know how far off we are from that being obtainable. But, you know, when I think about people talking about, you know, uh, uh, sustainability metrics and all of these types of things, you know, one way that you can be really sustainable is by making sure that you're not over formulating for nitrogen. You're not over formulating with energy, you know, that you're really conserving these valuable nutrients and making sure that you don't give the bird any more than it needs to be cost effective. Um, so I would love to see inline NIR become a larger uh, part of the industry. And I think, you know, I, I don't, again, I'm not an engineer. I know very little about uh, artificial intelligence, but I would imagine mm -hmm. that that learning curve is probably a lot quicker using artificial intelligence as opposed to just, you know, you and I sitting in a room looking at a bunch of batch records and saying, oh, did it hit yeah. target or did it not? You know, and so that's one of the things about, you know, being a nutritionist is we're looking at raw material values all the time and we have to make a decision. Do we want to stick with the diet that we're on or do our raw materials dictate that we actually need to change our formulas? And with inline NIR, um, I guess you instead of looking at values all the time, book values or, or what a lab is giving you. Now you become kind of the overseer of this technology that's making all these decisions and you're making sure that it's calibrated and tuned properly to dial in every single batch of feed. I don't know any nutritionist that would be comfortable with that right now, you know, but perhaps in 10 years or maybe in 20 years, that's going to be a much more uh, feasible technology for us to implement because it will have improved a lot by then. That's true. And I mean, I, I, I even, I, I'm sure that you have seen this too, but I mean, there are some companies that are using NIR to measure the particle size of ingredients, right? I mean, uh, you, you can uh, just use the tool in, in different areas of the, of the feed mill. And, uh, you know, like sometimes I think about the potential of NIR of, you know, an NIR analyzing the particle size of, you know, a ground material, maybe corn. And then telling the BFD if it needs to move faster or slower uh, to get to the target particle size that you want to get in that facility. So there is a lot of a lot of potential out there. Certainly. Well, we have all of these goals that we've set, right? So you want to get this specific particle size or this specific PDI. But in all honesty, making those changes. Uh, we're often so slow to actually get to make the change that by the time we've implemented the changes, our raw materials have changed or the weather has changed and, and it's no longer, um, you know, the change that we made that we thought would get us to that specific particle size is no longer going to work. So having something that's real and in time 
uh, would take that kind of guesswork out of it. And once it were ca- was calibrated, I would imagine it would work as a really good tool um, to make it so that if you want a thousand micron uh, corn, like you said, you hook it up to a VFD, they're talking back and forth. And mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it just slows down or speeds up to kind of optimize the process. And the nice thing about that is like it could account for like the differences on on the on on the core maybe you know entering in, and then adjust to to those changes in the in the in the characteristic of the um, incoming material, and uh, you know like since we are talking about particle size, um, I would like to get your thoughts on you know um, hammer mills versus uh, roller mills because if you go like to the southeast of the U.S. Everybody who is pelleting diets use, you know, hammer mills. But if you go like to the Midwest and people use more like mash diets, they use uh, roller mills. Uh, what, what is your, you know, um, thought on that? I, I believe that a roller mill has a, um, it definitely has its place even in, you know, like a broiler integrated feed operation. So, you know, there's a ton of research out there. Telling us, as, as we talked about earlier, that a, a broiler needs a coarse grind to, to make the gizzard work and for digestive efficiency. I know you did, you've done a lot of research on that. I've done a bit. You know, a, a lot of folks we know have worked on that. So there's no question that broilers benefit from having a coarse grind. One of the things that uh, I've noticed since um, working in some of these larger facilities is that uh, achieving a coarse grind with a hammer mill is very difficult. And even if you can get, you know, the particle size that you want with a hammer mill, oftentimes the distribution of those particles still doesn't lend itself well to having something that can flow. You know, so like like for a mash feed, for example, let's say you're, you know, you should have no problem getting a 1200 micron diet to flow uh, using a roller mill. But all of a sudden you start getting 1200 micron corn with a hammer mill that that diet may not flow at all when it gets out to the farm, you know, and and, in a perfect world, um, I guess I would have, you know, a hammer mill and a roller mill in the same facility, or if it's a large facility and you have four uh, grinding units, maybe three hammer mills and one roller mill, because at all times there's a need to have coarse corn uh, in a broiler operation. So you could operate three hammer mills uh, wide open and get a nice, you know, 600 micron grind or something out of them and then use this roller mill to give you a 1500 micron grind and just dose that coarse grind in different amounts based on the phase that that the bird is growing. So I think they have a good role um, to play on the broiler side, but I think uh, its most important role might be in the breeders actually. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what, why is that? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I've seen with us is we, we tried to transition a, a facility over from making pelleted and crumbled breeder feed over to mash feeds. And that's what I was getting at with the particle size. We could hit, you know, a particle size objective, or if you read the literature that, hey, this would be a good particle size for breeders or that it should flow here. And what we would see is that um, we would hit that particle size objective and then feed would get out on the farm. And the breeder guys are saying it's not flowing, you know, and that's a huge problem for us. That is like that. That really is breeder nutrition 101. You know, if they don't have feed, you're in trouble and you're in trouble quick. You, you, you only get to not give them feed for like a day and the whole flock is messed up. Right. 
So, um, so that's that we can't live with that. We have to have feeds that flow. So I think that uh, having a roller mill on site would allow a complex that's going to be feeding mash breeder feeds uh, to not have to pay so much attention to grinding all the time. You know, you set roller mills up, you know what particle size you're trying to hit, you make sure that it's going to uh, reach that objective, and you just kind of let it run because it, the, the distribution of those particles is so compact that they flow and you can feed it out well. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the one of the kind of biggest pushes that I see coming maybe in the next five or 10 or 20 years is, you know, feeding pullets has become much more difficult. And uh, we saw some data from a, one of the primary genetic companies recently that said that the broiler breeders today or the pullets specifically are consuming their feed 50 percent faster than they were 10 years ago. And that's really problematic for us because, you know, it's already difficult to feed breeders with feed distribution issues. And then when we pellet them, we're actually taking a diet that should be, um, it shouldn't be all that dense and we're making it denser by pelleting it. So I think one way that we could easily add volume to our pullets is by simply stopping the pelleting process and using a roller mill which we know the feed will flow and we can pick up distribution. We can pick up volume for that bird and, um, and we can get all the feed into the house. So um, it would be really scary to try to feed a bunch of pullets with a hammer mill because it just doesn't flow that well. But if we had a roller mill and you could get that 13, 1400 micron corn that you know is going to flow and that's going to be able to keep up with the equipment, um, I think that's going to be really important for us moving forward. And I highly doubt the, the speed at which they feed will become slower over time. So, you know, 10 years ago, maybe this wasn't a concern with breeders, but I'm worried that one day we're going to have to go back to feeding them mash feeds because they just eat way too fast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, another thing that I'm thinking right now, uh, JT, is that, um, you know, like if there are some uh, differences in particle size and you are feeding mash, there might be even some segregation inside, you know, the, the silos. So you, you want that particle, as, as you mentioned, like to be as uniform as, as possible, not only to, to get um, good flowability, but also to reduce uh, segregation uh, in, the, in the silo at the farm. Uh, and that might, might help, you know, with a bird uniformity, which is, is, is very important as well. Yeah, certainly. And that's something we deal with all the time whenever we're pelleting like breeder feeds is kind of that last bit of feed that comes through will often be a bit powdery. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, the birds don't like it. The people on the farm don't like to see it and it doesn't flow as well. Um, so anything we can do to remove some of that variation in the size of what we're offering those birds, I think would be advantageous when we go to feed them. So, uh, you know, I, I just have another question uh, before I, I ask you the last question. I remember, you know, when I when I was a, a grad student in, in NC State, I had like, you know, a poultry nutritionist in my committee. And uh, he always mentioned that, um, you know, when you make ch changes in the formula, you should always go and uh, check, you know, how that change affects, you know, the performance of the birds. 
how often do you think that you you need to you know you change the formula you need to monitor the performance of the birds how often you need to do that yeah well our approach might be a, a little bit different on that so at, at mm -hmm. rayford we've uh, you know my my boss um dave burnham he's a real big believer in consistency for the birds and obviously mm -hmm. being with him for for years now he's also made me a believer um, so we don't make very drastic changes to our nutrition or to the nutrition program mm -hmm. hardly ever. Um, so I've, we've gone through a couple major revisions of it in the five years I've been there. But whenever we're changing formulas, we're still hitting the same specs. Just our raw materials have changed. You know, so I haven't seen like an imminent need to every time a formula change occurs to go out there and look at the birds. Um, mm -hmm. But with that being said, we spend as much time as we can in the field. Um, you know, so it's not like it's not like we're just sitting in an office waiting to make a change and then we make the change. Now it's time to go out out to the field and look at the birds. I'm usually getting them at least one day a week. I would love to be out there more, but usually one day a week, mm -hmm. one to three days a week. I'm on a farm anyways. Um, so I get to see that. And, you know, any changes we make are always in the back of my mind that we should be looking for something. But we also evaluate everything in an internal research uh with internal research trials. So that's where we kind of, if we're going to make major nutrient changes or changes to the diets, that's where we're going to start them off at, where we can observe them in a controlled environment and, uh, and with accurate measurements. And then if we take that data, uh, we decide to make a change or an overhaul to the nutrition program, we'll make that change. And then yes, in that case, we will be out on the farms looking very closely at whatever specific things we've changed. You know, like, recently or a couple of years ago, we made a pretty big change to our calcium and phosphorus levels. Mm -hmm. And right when those changes were coming through, we were making weekly observations um, on farms, but also um, necropsy and birds, looking at bone strength and all of those things to make sure that the changes that we made um, well, weren't going to have a negative impact on the animal. Yeah. As as Doctor uh, Brett used to say, right? Uh, listen to the to the chickens, right? That's right. They don't read the manual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the Animal Nutrition Team at Eastman.com. I have, you know, like my, my, la my last question of, of the day is, you know, like um, you and I, uh, we were, you know, grad students a few years ago. And I always like to get, you know, like um, the opinion of our guests on what can uh, grad students do while they are um, in grad school to prepare better to their professional careers? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think kind of several things come to mind. One would be to just try to get as much exposure as you can um, to the industry or whatever industry it is that you want to work in. So, you know, if you wanted to work in academia, I would say see if you can go visit with another professor for a summer or a semester. Um, if you want to be a production nutritionist, you know, give one a call and see if they'll let you come hang out with them for a day or a week. And, you know, if you wanted to work with a, with a, in the allied industry, you know, lean on some of those people to see if they could, you know, 
tour you around some of their facilities or let you go visit a customer with them or something like that. Um, I think one of the biggest things that helped me coming out of NC State, you know, working with John Brake and Adam Fahrenholtz and, and Charles Stark and all those guys um, is, is, was having access to that feed mill. So that, that was huge for me because um, I know for lots of folks, uh, the feed mill can be a large learning curve. You know, you just walk into this big concrete building, you can't see anything in them, and you're wondering what's going on all over the place. Um, so having access to a teaching facility like that was huge for me because, you know, I spent like eight or nine years working there. I just, I was pretty comfortable with feed mills when I left school. So I would say, you know, spend as much time as you can uh, in the feed mill while you're there. If you can get breeder experience while you're a graduate student, that would be excellent. So, um, I, you know, I, I know there's not many universities out there that still keep breeders, but uh, anything you could do to learn about breeders or go to your, you know, your your nearest integrator and see if you can go out with their breeder manager or one of their breeder service techs to watch breeders feed um, to understand kind of, you know, uh, uh where your mind should be as a graduate student thinking about nutrition and breeders. I mean, they, they only feed for like an hour every day. You know, it happens early in the morning, but that's like the most exciting thing on a breeder farm. So see if somebody will take you to go watch breeders feed. And, um, and I would also encourage graduate students to, to do their own feed formulation. So, you know, that's one of the things that they made us do like first day in school probably sat down with you or, or with some other kind of um, senior graduate student. And you guys would teach us how to use feed formulation programs. And we were kind of expected to start formulating our own research diets immediately. Um, so, you know, I've talked to lots of students that haven't formulated their own feeds before. And even if your professor isn't comfortable using whatever diets you formulated, you at least should go through the practice of it because it doesn't matter if you're going to be a, uh, of, you know, a production nutritionist, or you're going to work in allied industry or academia, you're going to need to understand those programs and understand enough about them to at least formulate a, a basic diet to do research or to understand your customers' issues. Or if you're in production nutrition, obviously, you're going to need to be able to do it for, uh, uh, to, to send your formulas to the feed mill every week. So I think those would be the kind of three main things to spend as much time as you can in the feed mill, um, get as much breeder experience as you can and then formulate your own diets. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, something that we are doing right now at Auburn and, uh, it's working out really well. JT is, um, allowing or just encouraging a grad students to do internships during the summer, maybe for like a month or two months, depending on their interest. And uh, I think that's, that's going to be uh, good for them once they are going to be more prepared once that they leave, you know, at uh, the university and, they go and, and work with, uh, you know, with uh, in academia or in, or in the industry. No, I think that's a great point, Wilmer. I mean, you know, we we get to see it some on the on the veterinary side. Um, you know, the veterinarians, whenever they're going through their you know avian medicine program or their residencies, they pretty much have to go spend time with a commercial veterinarian or or a, or a you know a production vet to learn about that side of the business. And I'm, I'm hoping that over time, kind of the nutrition world will become more open like that because it is, it's really hard to get the experience as, as a graduate student, you know, but if these people are uh, put in a position where they can go have internships, 
I think it can be very, you know, um, mind opening to see kind of what the silo that you see at the university gets expanded out to in this very large system. Uh, and it and it'll and I think it could help guide their research a lot too, you know, to help them understand the problems and kind of the practical side of why it is that they're doing trials at the university. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, uh, JT, um, I just want to thank you for your time. Um, I, I'm sure like, uh, you know, like everybody who listens to this uh, podcast is going to learn a lot. And uh, I hope you have a, a good day. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Minutes, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.